HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported podcast network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. This year, we're celebrating 10 years of food radio. For the past decade, we've been taking you behind the scenes of farms, restaurants, breweries, school cafeterias, and more. It's been 10 years, and we're just getting started. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. This is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer, and today we are going to speak with a special whistleblower. Uh, You might remember from an article that was uh, um, published in the New York Times in 2015 by Michael Moss. Uh, His name is Jim Keane. He is a veterinarian with 25 years of research and field experience in livestock health and production medicine, veterinary public health, zoonotic infections, and biomedicine. Way to make me feel bad about myself, Jim. He is a faculty member at the University of Nebraska Lincoln's School of Veterinary Medicine and Biomedical Sciences, and he was concurrently at the USDA's Meat Animal Research Center, otherwise known as MARC, from 1988 to 2014, working for both the USDA and the University of Nebraska. Um, Jim, thanks so much for joining me today. Um, So you were the subject of an expose by Michael Moss in which you um, basically blew the whistle on the Meat Animal Research Center uh, because you claimed that their uh, methods were so inhumane and um, what they were doing to animals was unnecessarily cruel. Is that right? Yeah, that's correct, Katie. That was my <clears throat> the conclusion I came to after observing it for a while. After multiple years after in the field years, there. Right. Um, so why don't you start by describing some of the work that you did for the MARC, otherwise known as MARC. We'll refer to it as that from now on. Um, well, I worked in two areas. One was strictly animal health. I worked with viruses that affect sheep and goats. And then I also... <coughs> Most of my career with the USDA was with what's called pre-harvest food safety. Pre-harvest food safety. Okay, so that, that means clean animals before you kill them. Exactly. You try to prevent animals from having things like salmonella or pathogenic E. coli. The idea is if you prevent them 
being presented for slaughter without the pathogens, and the meat would be free of the mm-hmm. pathogen, mm-hmm. and then people would get less illness. Now, now, how would that be possible given the way that we normally raise animals in this country um, in concentrated area feeding operations? <laughs> I mean, that seems like a sort of unrealistic goal, um, but apparently you, you and your research center felt that it was a realistic goal. Yeah, well, not myself, a lot of other people, especially when the E. coli kind of emerged in the early 90s and it became a cottage industry among right. most of the land-grant universities worked on it. And the belief at that time was um, we see the world differently now that we could actually do something while animals are alive. Part of it might be wishful thinking on the part of the processors who didn't want to have to deal with rather have it pushed downstream. Sure. I'm Absolutely. Sorry, upstream. Upstream. Yeah. 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 Way easier for them. So um, let's just remind listeners of what um, what specifically uh, prompted you to uh, reach out to Michael Moss um, and uh, say, you know, I, I, I need to I need to draw a line in the sand here about what we're doing at this research facility. What what exactly was so troubling to you? Well, it wasn't actually one event. It happened over. Um, over um, several years, so it wasn't just one thing. But at one point in um, early, late 2007, I switched from the univers- from the USDA to the university, still on the campus of Mark. And then I worked with clinical veterinarians. I did some clinical work and teaching before I just, all re- just did all research. And so I started hearing, seeing my, with my own eyes and hearing other stories from my own colleagues, um, things that they saw and things that I saw that were disturbing. And I did for many years, for six or seven years, I reported, or in my end evaluation, I reported to my, um, my boss, my bosses, my directors, what I saw. <laughs> it's okay, Jim. Okay. A little hand noise there. We, we have to stop that now. Nip it in the bud. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Katie. Um, yeah, maybe I was more sensitive, but I was also more immersed in it because I see it myself and hear about it, which I didn't before because it's mostly in the lab or right. a different setting. I see. Um, so before this, before the, sort of in that previous to that sort of six years of actually working at Mark, you were more in a lab, and so you weren't actually working. I was either in a lab or on actual farms. Right, right. I, did, I didn't really do very much work with animals on the center. I see. And then when I started working with the university, one of their um, tasks is to take care of Mark animals. That was part of my job and also teaching, but I was just become aware of what was happening to animals on the center. And so what did you see exactly? Well, some things I saw. I mean, there were some projects that I saw um, that actually I was aware of for a long time. They do lots of, the focus of Mark is really genetics of, of cattle, sheep, and swine. They want to make new improved breeds, which basically means they make more meat. Yeah, more meat. As you said at some point, I, I don't know whether it was in your presentation earlier today or whether it was something I read that you wrote, but it was basically uh, fewer inputs for greater outputs, right? right. That's, yeah, that's the philosophy of the meat industry, and that apparently was the goal of the research facility. Right. That's called, they call that production efficiency. There you go. That's the word that they use. So, I, I love mean, those I mean, euphemisms, don't they're you? They're all euphemisms. That's right. <laughs> but again, I, was, I helped generate those euphemisms probably at one point or supported those. But, um, yeah, I mean, I would see things I saw. I would see the, uh, there's the cows that would have twins. We the twin I heard they had green ear tags. I always knew what they were and never thought about it. But, yeah, I heard, I knew about the issues. The cows are designed to have a, one animal, and they would have twins, a lot of bad things. It's not, like, horrendously visible, but right. animals, I mean, the legs get tangled when they give birth. Sure. The calves, the calves get messed up as the calves die. 
from well, and also you can imagine the animal, the mother being rather significantly injured uh, trying to give birth to twins yeah, when she's not, not supposed to. Yeah, I would say in general on the genetics side, what Mark tried to do was in the name of with the single fo singular focus on production, they would ignore other negative consequences of what they were doing. If you just select for the big, best example, not at Mark, but have you ever seen a dairy cow? Mm -hmm. a black and white Holstein dairy cow. Sure. It's basically a small, a normal cow body attached to gigantic udders. They've just yes. selected incredibly to have milk production at the expense of everything else. And Mark did basically variants of that um, to make more muscle mass, either through a genetic mutation, that was a common thing, or, or genetic selection, like with the twinners, you have two cows, two calves versus one, you have eventually more meat. Right. Um, See, what about, other ones were more experimental issues, like um, more piglets in a litter, for yeah, example. That, exactly, that was also that would be more a good example. And they of did that. that there. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And the problem with the piglets was you get more piglets, but then there's only so much room in a uterus, so you can have, say, eight or nine normal-sized piglets, or thirteen or fourteen large ones, but they're they're so small that then more of them die, so it might end up being the same, it's the same, the same that end, right? right? So you're focusing too much on numbers. Uh, Maybe then quantity versus, I think that's, the general trade-off is more quantity for less quality. Right, right. Because that's what, in the commodity system, there is no difference. You're not paid based on quality, you're paid on, paid on quantity, as you know. Yes, yes, I do. I did know that. So um, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm going to rush you through this for a second because I do want to talk about genetics a, a, a bit more in depth because that's becoming an animal welfare issue that's more visible to the public, I think. Um, and um, certainly Leah Garces from uh, Mercy for Animals has um, recently written a book. I interviewed her about it a couple of weeks ago talking about how they're they're starting to dial back the, the excessive um, focus on the giant breast uh, tissue in um, in poultry, for example, because of all of the all of the, the the issues around that kind of muscle growth, like woody breast and fibrous breast, and so forth and so on. But we'll talk about that in a second. So, so the purpose of this these experiments that you observed were to increase output with um, fewer inputs, and then what. What actually drove you to blow the whistle on this? Because, like, you have suffered actually significant um, blowback from being the guy who opened his yap. So, w why did you decide? What what lifted your your blinders there? Because I mean, you're deeply. I mean, we're to set the stage. Where you're deeply immersed in the science. You're deeply immersed in the culture of this industry, essentially. And then somehow, gradually, you started to be like. It's creeping me out. <laughs> well, that's pretty. That's pretty, pretty much what pretty happened. Much, pretty much what happened. Yeah, <laughs> but over it took some time for that to happen. Well, it was kind of multiple things. I mean, I, on on the work front, I'd see things. I mean, experimental things that I didn't see, but I heard about from my colleagues. Like they did like brain surgery on pigs. They'll drill a hole into their brain, and then and this is by people who have no training in it. You know, that one of my friends with a veterinarian said I would never do that surgery, and then somebody who has no training just does it. And the pigs would not be anesthetized. Is that what you're saying? Um, they had to be sedated. You can't I'm, drill a hole in a pig's head without... I presume... I, I don't actually know for sure. I presume they were sedated, probably. Not anesthetized, but probably sedated. Oh, yeah. But just the concept of... pig is going to kick up a fuss over that. Yeah, I'm probably sedated, but I don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't recall the details. Anymore. But I mean, there, there, was, there were also experimental things that were done that were disturbing that either I... Some I saw in the past, some I just heard about. I forgot your question, Katie. I'm digressing. <laughs> no, that's why digression is part of the whole program. This okay. is a conversation. It's okay. not like an interview. I mean, it is an interview, but it's not. 
um, it's perfectly okay. But no, I, I was looking for something specific that kind of, or was there a specific moment when the blinders fell from your eyes and you thought, Jesus Christ, I can't, I can't participate in this any longer? You know, um, so I, over, part of it was frustration over the years, probably six or seven years, I tell my boss. But in fairness, I, at that time, I worked for the university and they don't actually control. They could make a suggestion, but they couldn't actually. I mean, my job is to report to my supervisor, who was university. Um, I didn't report to the USD at that time. So I, I, I could report to my, I didn't, that, but the university did not have the power to change policies at Mark. But mm -hmm. that my channel was to go through my boss. Um, so there was frustration, but I'm, I'm, I'm saying that my boss didn't have the power to, to, to directly change it, but I did my part. And so I was frustrated by that. Um, also on my family side, as I mentioned, I talked today, my daughter had, had started a CSA. She raised um, community-supported ag, organic farm in a small little town in central Nebraska, and she raised heritage pigs and heritage chickens for eggs and uh, heritage uh, crop of flowers and vegetables and things like yeah. that. So I saw there's an alternative right there, things I didn't see before. Um, and then, but you know, I don't remember exactly what it was. I don't know. I've, I've forgotten. It was just exactly. kind of a critical mass of like. I was probably. I don't know. If you remember what it was? I probably got. It was probably a moment. Again, this has been sort of simmering for a long time, for for a few years. I. I'm probably. It was probably a moment when I was mad, at, either USDA, or or the university. I'm not sure what it was. I got a mental block there. But I'm yeah. sure there had to be something that made me. I'm not pure as a driven snows. I'm saying I had some something right. made me mad. Because I was delaying acting. I mean, I was, I was delaying acting because I knew if I got caught, I would be. It, you knew it, that there would serious, be serious, serious repercussions, yeah. right? Yeah. And indeed, that happened. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit about um, some of the drugs that you probably used um, in at least some of these experiments, because that's something, I mean, besides the use of antibiotics, uh, there are beta agonists and, um, you know, I don't know. What else? You tell me. You're the expert. You're the vet. Well, the, let me see. Okay, there are the beta agonists, which basically, I um, can't think of the term. They basically allow the animal to put on more muscle instead of Right. Fat. Again, it's, it's, it's more output with less input. More output. In other words. Another, another class or the hormones. So the hormones. feed conversion is faster. Exactly. Yeah. Better feed conversion and more muscle mass for a given amount of feed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, same thing. Or more, yeah, more muscle. Not Muscle's worth more than fat, so you want more yes. muscle. Second issue are hormones, either natural or synthetic. Things like if you, if you have a female animal like a, like a um, heifer, you want to give her male hormones because testosterone or synthetic ones make them grow um, Okay, that was grow interesting. Faster. Yeah. And uh, so they, get they put a little impl it's called implants, put them in their ear. Yep, and they I've pretty seen much those. All, they pretty much all feedlot animals use that. Most of the work I did was in feedlots. Yep. Then, of course, there's antibiotics. Um, and I did it when I was doing my uh, E. coli pathogenic E. coli work, I tried using antibiotics to um, try to control um, the pathogen the load. Pathogen, right. And some of them, I mean, there's a trade-off. You can use those. Well, you actually can't use them very long. If you use them, become resistant to it. But that was a tool. So the only actual drugs that I used were some certain antibiotics uh, in my own uh, research. But other work done at the center was with drugs like ractopamine, the ones that, um, you know, uh, redistribute make more muscle and less fat. Again, those are more in, in, the, in the animal livestock research world, uh, trials with uh, like rectopamine or the hormones, those are usually done by animal nutritionists. Veterinarians may tend to do more work with antibiotics. So uh -huh. my own experience was just with antibiotics. But yeah, uh, drugs are another, I call it uh, 
pharm- uh, uh, factory pharmacology. Yeah. F-A-R-M. Well, the reason yeah. I, I dwell on ractopamine is that <clears throat> I know that ractopamine, um, having written this book about meat and everything, and also been following the industry for 10 years, I know that ractopamine has been banned in over 150 countries. Um, the Chinese, for example, won't accept any pork or uh, you know from our country that has been mm-hmm. treated. And indeed, Smithfield, of course, now owned by the Chinese, um, has a whole herd that does not get ractopamine. But ractopamine um, creates uh, certain health problems um, that uh, are you know definitely have an impact on the well-being of the of the animal. Can you talk a little bit about what you may have observed in? Um, in your work or, or, or read about in your whilst you were doing well, can, your work? There was a, um, the drug name escapes me. There was a drug very similar to ractopamine, same class, a beta uh, agonist that was after I was, when I was found on this I was banned from the center. So this uh-huh. work was done at the center, but after I was banned, so I read about it. But they actually, there was a trial that showed one of the major um, beef processors would not accept animals, had beef cattle that had taken the ractopamine equivalent for beef cattle because they got in, they were so heavy that they would break down and couldn't either, uh, you know, um, it's called a downer cow when it got off the truck yeah. or they'd break down at some point during the processing. So they, they refused to accept them. Right. So then uh, Merck was the company that made the drug. Um, I'm sorry, I can't remember. It was, oh. Uh, That's okay. Okay, oh, it'll come to me. Well, anyway, it was just, it was like ractopamine. And so, USDA Mark did a study on that, funded by the industry, and what do you think their answer was? <laughs> Keep using it. <laughs> Keep using it. didn't have any effects on welfare. Well, it was supposed animal welfare study, but they had no animal welfare metrics in it. But right. it gave the industry... <laughs> <laughs> okay. It gave the industry cover. cover. Industry-funded study that said it's fine to use this product. Right. Um, it doesn't have the bad effects that were... And it doesn't linger in the flesh of the animal so that there, it provides no... It, it, it offers no public health. There are no public um, health risks associated with it. I think, I think maybe it's below it. the detectable level. Because uh-huh. at the withdrawal time for those types of drugs, their metabolize very quickly. So I think it's like you can... If you take them off, you only use the last, say, 30 days in cattle, last 30 days on... Because you don't need them. Animals get fat. If you use those drugs, you can keep them on feed for an, and a month longer. So that's why they get yeah. bigger. Normally, have to, if they, once they put on fat, you send them to slaughter with those drugs. Last 30 days, they make muscle for 30 additional days. But then you take the, the drug doesn't hang around long. So you, I think if you take them off for 24 hours, then you can go to slaughter. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah. And what about, just to clear something up for uh, consumers, um, you know, a lot of consumers feel like their antibiotics still in the meat um, because of you know, because everybody knows now that and that animals are routinely fed antibiotics, subtherapeutic doses of antibiotics, either for growth promotion or for disease prevention. Um, do those? Isn't there a weaning off period before the animal goes to slaughter, or or how do they? I mean, how, how do they uh, ascertain that there are no residual chemicals in the animal's flesh by the time it gets to slaughter? Well, to my knowledge, I'm not an expert in the area, but the, the Food Safety Inspection Service has protocols. See, it depends on the drug. So some, you know, like, like any, some drugs hang around longer. Right. Some, especially the ones that are fat-soluble and things that are water-soluble, they may be gone very quickly. So it depends on the drug. There are some, some antibiotics you can give the day before, and then they're, and they're cleared. And the F- Food Safety Inspection Service, I'm sorry, the FDA rather, does that work. Yeah. And it's pretty good. I mean, it's below the, the and in fact, the, um, I think the bigger issue for drugs is all, the whole time, the risk going to slaughter is probably fairly low, at least very low levels, unless someone is cheating, you know, and not doing it, not, you can't prevent all cheating. But um, 
there is a high cost if you get caught multiple times. You can be fined a lot. So there's a high. It's hard to get caught, but if you get caught, the penalties are severe. Right. But I think the bigger issue with antibiotics is to, if they're on feed, for example, they're excreting the antibiotic into the environment all the time, so all right. those other bacteria are seeing it all the time. So I don't think the risk is so much from you consuming it. It's from generating resistant antibiotic-resistant antibiotic pathogens. Cause sure. Because they're putting out gobs of it every day that they're yeah. feed. So. Absolutely. And then that, gets, that waste is sprayed over fields. It exactly. enters the water table. It's in the water. It's in the soil. Oh, yeah. <clears throat> yeah. That's, that's very alarming to me. Um, but let's talk a little bit about... Um, you know, so you're doing this research, um, you know, whether it's on genetics or whether it's on the use of, of antibiotics uh, in the system or whatever. Uh, and who exactly is paying for the research? Is this being funded by the meat industry, given that they are the ones who are actually benefiting from the research? Or is it something that the university pays for? Who, who, who's coughing up the cake on this? Well, it's, so within the federal government side, they have money allocated um, by Congress, um, with the USDA, what's called the Ag Research Service, and they get about one point four to one five one point five billion dollars per year. Billion with a B. Yeah, all the ag research dollars in the U.S. are about two billion uh -huh. federal, and one, about one point four of that goes to the internal in-house research arm, which is the Ag Research Service, and the other seven hundred million is divided among basically all the land grant universities. So okay. the majority of the money goes. Is internally funded, and that's who I worked for for some time. Within universities, they don't get that direct money from allocation. They have to apply for competitive grants. Uh -huh. On the federal side, you don't. The money's there automatically, and you write something how you're going to do it. So it's much different. The trade-off is, in the federal government, you do what you're told. The university side, you have to get the money, but which means, well, you still have to work on what somebody proposes. Yeah, it means, but it do. means that you can write your own proposition. You can exactly. you can write for the research that you want and then hope you get funding for it, um, assuming that it's going to be something that comes up to, you know, the standards of either the institution or um, or presumably the US the Agricultural Research Service, right? Mm -hmm. I right. mean one way or the other somebody is going to approve that. It's because you it's self determined. Right. Okay, interesting. But what but one issue I want to bring up is that yes. even within the USDA, they also get industry money from the different like for example, the National Cattlemen Beef Association, Thank they you. put out competitive grants. And they prefer to go to the USDA because in the USDA, and this happened, um, the director, say of Mark, could say, Everyone's gonna work on this project and it could be an industry project, so the industry may put up a hundred thousand dollars, right, to do this they want it done quickly. Yeah. And but the labor would, would be would cost a fortune if the university did it because the director can just shift the resources. So it's a huge bargain for the industry to get the USA to do their research. If it's in a university, it would take much longer. Graduate students would do it. Right. And they may not get the right answer. Right. Right. Because there is a, a certain compulsion to come up with the right answer, no right. doubt. I mean, especially if you, want, if you want to get more funding. I mean, there's a, a tight... I mean, if the mark is a part of, or the USDA would say it's a, it supports Big Ag, and they, they support each other, right? Mm -hmm. So it's, mm -hmm. I mean, they're, they're friendly with each other, so it's normal that they would help each, other, help each other out. The industry will help lobby Congress on behalf of the USDA, since USDA can't lobby Congress directly by right. law. And then return, I think, I almost look at, a, I almost look at it as a quid pro pro. I can't prove this. <laughs> the and quid pro quo. That's right, the famous three phrase. <laughs> yeah. Yes, we've all become experts in Latin. That's right. <laughs> So anyway, but, but it's a great deal, I think, for companies. I, and I, in my I'll opinion, say. And I, in my opinion, the, uh, the U.S. mark is the research arm for research the industry needs done very quickly, such as this issue with the 
the ractopamil drug in cattle. They need to get that dealt with quickly. Mark got it done in two or three months. Wow. Because Impressive. they can put people on it. And it's highly subsidized as well because the biggest cost of research is labor. Yeah. There's no labor charge. The company might pay for the materials. And then it's probably a five or six to one cost share. Right, we right. We pay most. So, so in other words, taxpayers are... are Paying most of the paying cost. Paying most of the cost for right. industry research. And, and I suppose that this extends into other industries. I'm not going to go down that yeah, I, I I can't speak to that right for now, sure. But yeah. I can only I can only speak for, uh, you know, um, meat, cattle, sheep, and swine. Right. Which, I'm just thinking like yeah. um, seed genetics and you know like the sort of the whole sort of unpack the whole Monsanto. DuPont, I would assume Dow so, DuPont. but I, I mean I think they're also getting a lot of free freebies out of these USDA um, research grants. Yeah, well, that's certainly true on the university side. They get a lot of funding on the on the crop side from the Monsanto of the world. Um, more so than the animal side would. Right. Okay, we're going to take a short break. I'm going to, and uh, we'll be right back with Jim Keen, uh, the whistleblower uh, on the uh, Meat Animal Research, um, what is it? M A R C, Meat Center. Animal Research Center. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Roberta's, home of Heritage Radio Network for 10 years. Roberta's was founded in Bushwick in 2008 and has become one of the most iconic restaurants in the country. HRN made its home inside of Roberta's in 2009, and together they have become part of the DIY fabric of the neighborhood. Roberta's, the pizza restaurant, is open for lunch and dinner seven days a week and serves much more than just the famous wood-fired pizzas. Their team dreams up new salads, pastas, and sandwiches on the regular. Roberta's Tiki Bar is alive and well in the back garden, serving up frozen drinks in the summer and hot toddies in the winter. Stop by the bakery and takeout spot next door for fresh breads, sticky buns, and pizzas to go. And of course, there's the two Michelin-starred Blanca tucked away in the garden for truly daring diners. But Roberta's also extends beyond Bushwick, with multiple locations in New York City and now in Los Angeles. You can also find their frozen pies in grocery stores around the country. The spirit of Roberta's, like Heritage Radio Network, is everywhere. Here's to many more years of pizza-powered radio. Learn more about Roberta's at robertaspizza.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Linda Liu, and I'm the host of Feast Meets West, the show that celebrates Asian culture through the lens of food here on HRN. Listen to episodes like The Evolution of Chinatown with Numwa Tea Parlors, Wilson Tang, and New York Times' Elaine Chen. Catch our ongoing series, Women in Asian Food, and spotlight episodes with our heroes like Anita Lowe. You can find Feast Meets West wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. So 
We're back. Uh, this is What Doesn't Kill You, Food Industry Insights. I'm your host, Katie Kiefer. I'm talking to Jim Keen. Uh, Jim is a, a doctor of veterinary medicine and um, blew the whistle, as you might remember, from a 2015 article in the New York Times by Michael Moss um, about uh, animal welfare issues um, endemic to uh, the Meat Animal Research Center at the University of Nebraska. And um, as a result of blowing the whistle, uh, Jim has suffered numerous repercussions um, professionally, um, which we'll, we'll get to in a minute. Um, but in the meantime, I, I wanted to talk for a minute about the way, because we were just before the break, we were talking about how U.S. Um, taxpayers are funding a lot of this research. So you, you gave an example of how you spent a lot of time, um, you know, before you sort of had your come to Jesus moment, um, you spent a lot of time <laughs> thinking about how you could get rid of salmonella and E. coli prior to an animal going from feedlot to slaughter to processing. Um, and that, you know, ultimately that program ended up costing something like $13 million um, before that particular avenue of research was shut down. Can you talk a little bit about why that kind of persisted, like even though it was must have been obvious pretty quickly that this was not really a, um, you know, like a viable plan? Well, you know, Katie, when you're doing like research, you think, you know, research, that means researching. So True. if one thing doesn't fail, you try the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And I should say, I quit doing that research because that's the time when I left the USDA and joined the university. I Other see. people at the USDA continued. They may still be doing it now. I don't know. I haven't followed. But it's probably still ongoing. Wow. I've been proposed. I've, I haven't followed the field, but and it wasn't just USDA. Most of the land grants, there were probably hundreds of labs around the world were working on that because it's a high dollar thing. People get sick, kills oh, kids, yeah. not good, costs a lot of money. Right. And the meat recalls. You hope you heard sometimes if you get salmonella E. coli in a meat sample, they recall millions of pounds. Oh hell yeah! I well, I read Food Poison Journal. Yeah. <laughs> Right. <laughs> I so, read all of Bill Marler's publications yeah. religiously, absolutely. Yeah, sure. And Doug Powell, who writes the Barf right. blog. Have you ever read the I Barf sure blog? <laughs> yeah, I sure have. I met Doug I Powell. I love that guy. I, yeah. <laughs> he at least makes it funny. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so, so another thing that you brought up was that no animal experiment, however ridiculous, useless, or painful, is illegal. Can we talk a little bit about the, the, the lack of regulation around animal welfare in these research centers? Well, this, this speaks more general to animal welfare. There was something called the Animal Welfare Act, which was first uh, came out in the mid-1980s. It wasn't called the Animal Welfare Act. That was what it's referred It's not the formal name, but that's what it's right. called. And there were specific carve-outs that some senators didn't, didn't like. For example, it was om, om, uh, directed mostly towards animals in research. And so 95% animals in research are rodents and mice. They're not right. part of the Animal Welfare Act. So right. most animals used in research are not protected by the Animal Welfare Act. And also animals used in federal federal animals used in federal research and livestock are also exempt from the Animal Welfare All Act. All of them. See, of I them. thought it was only poultry. I didn't realize it's, that hogs and, it, and cattle any, were also exempt. Any uh, species used in research. in research at a federal... Gotcha. Agricultural animals and research at a federal facility, not right. at a university, but at a federal facility. It's, right. very, it's a very specific carve out for ARS, actually, for the right. in-house research agency. Right, right. And then wow. that's that's corrupting, you know. It's, it's, well, um, sure. I mean, once you can do whatever you want, I mean. Well, I mean, well, I want freedom, right? And but freedom, yeah. it, it can be abused. Yes, right. And clearly, you didn't want to keep. You didn't want to be part of that program. So, <clears throat> what happened when you blew the whistle? 
what, let's let's talk a little bit about the repercussions that you have experienced. Well, I was actually working sort of as a leaker because I'm a chicken, and I, I contacted Michael Moss. I don't think and that's I, chicken. I think that's prudent. Well, prudent might be a euphemism for it, but I mean, I was afraid of the repercussions. <laughs> well, naturally. So I uh, contacted uh, Mr. Moss because he was at the Times, New York Times, and a Pulitzer Prize winner. He had some, you know, uh, what's yeah. the word, panache or gravitas or something. Oh, yeah. He's a, great, he's a fantastic reporter and a great guy. So and I, I got Michael. to know him. And actually, yeah. he had read some of my work because he had won his Pulitzer Prize for work on E. coli. And I don't right. want to work on E. coli. So we had a little bit of commonality there. But anyway, so I worked with him. Before I was caught out, I was giving him information to, for Freedom of Information So you were Act. leaking. I was leaking. Right. Okay. Uh, and I thought cool. I could sort of... Um, skate through can, with can that. Skate through it with that, unrealistically, as it turned out. And at one point, he wanted to visit Mark to see with his own eyes, was a specific project was called the Easy Care Sheep, which I call No Care Sheep. Right. Um, but anyway, it was a very abusive um, project. He wanted to see with his own eyes, and he saw a lot. There was a lot of, uh, I was really, I was concerned about that. So he came out on a Sunday. It was Mother's Day, May 11th in 19, 2014. Wow. But no one's, there's really anybody there on it. Nobody's there on a Sunday. It's closed down. Sure. But of course, somebody showed up unexpectedly, so I got outed. Mm. So I got found out. And then shortly after that, I was uh, put on admin leave. And then some. I was away for a year, uh, seven or 18 months, the way it turned out. You were on administrative leave for 17 or 18 months. It was administrative leave, plus I got sick from the whole. You actually first you you experienced physical problems. I did right. So a yeah. combination of uh, so stress related illness. Stress, yeah, it was stress related because yeah. I had some uh, very large organizations um, very angry at me, and I had as I might have Can you say who they were? Well, the organizations it was University of Nebraska and and the, the USDA. USDA. Okay, right. all right. And, and, so yeah, and let's, typical. Let's out I'm, them. Let's yeah. let's be. So let's I mean, I call had the uh, the. Uh, FBI came out to see me. I had the Jesus. State Patrol, the Why local the police. Why the FBI? Why is the FBI involved in this? Well, the person, the FBI agent interviewed me. He popped, I remember he popped at my door, oh, at my home, and he said, Jesus. Uh, he was with the University of Nebraska Chief of Police. Oh, <laughs> and, my God. And he said, um, I'm, uh, don't worry, you're not in trouble. Um, Stop. <laughs> uh, I'm just here to talk. And I said, I said, uh, BS, FBI doesn't show up at your house. I don't know yeah, right. you're not in trouble. So he said, right. yeah. Um, anyway, uh, he was—he didn't accuse me of being eco-terrorist, but he investigated eco-terrorism. So, was I could assume that's what I was. Now, was is there? there let me just open a parenthesis. Is there an ag-gag law in Nebraska that would, apl- that would have applied to you in this case? I mean, like, how, um, how could well, they? Well, there is no ag-gag. How they, could they say you were an eco-terrorist? You were well, simply. Well, I think it's, it's part of the retribution process. Wow. I think so it, they just made know, that up. They made okay. that up. Yeah. I mean, there was yeah. no evidence for it, but they—they, right. they, um, like, I'm not. Sh- I don't know. At the time, did they know that Michael Moss was a reporter for the Times, or they just knew that you had brought an outsider into the facility? I don't mean to dwell on this for too um, long, but I'm just kind of curious. Like, this is so, this is like yeah, this every paranoiac's, you well, know, nightmare. I had, I had two <laughs> issues with the police. One was when I first got discovered, yeah. and the Times piece came out six months later. So when that first right. came out, I had issues with, I actually, when that first came out, it was in May, I was banned. I was um, hiding out in a friend of mine. A friend of mine's um, amazing. Um, Were you actually house. in fear of your life? Well, I was fear, afraid of being arrested, actually, because I didn't know. Right. I mean, you must have been afraid you'd lose your job. I mean, oh, you that, that for sure. That, that, that was, was going to happen. Yeah, yeah. I, that's, I was very afraid of that. I also was afraid I'd be arrested, and I knew the police were looking for me. So my lawyer said, "Well, Jesus. you don't have to tell them where you are." So I went to hide out at my friend's ranch in the middle of nowhere. 
And, yeah. um, and the second time the police, at the New York Times piece came out six months later, then that's when the FBI came and some other. I would be followed sometimes by the state patrol when I left my driveway. I think it was, in retrospect, it was just harassment. It was intimidation. Intimidation, right, yeah. probably. Yeah. But I didn't know at the time, you know. Right. It's kind of classic, like, whistleblower treatment, isn't it? Right. I think, well, it I'm is. Sure yeah, I didn't learned. know it at the time, but I learned it. Yeah. Yes, right. And so um, I, 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 want, I don't want to dwell too long on that, but, but so now you're about to leave the University of Nebraska, right? right? I have to say I have a non-disparagement clause. So I, of course. So you so can't say anything I bad. I can't say anything I understand. bad. Yep. And I'm happy with the agreement that was made. This was just happened recently, right. um, so I'm going to be leaving in uh, in a few months. And in the meantime, since this article came out four years ago, what what have you been doing? Because you haven't been teaching, have you? Um, yeah, unfortunately, I wasn't. I used to teach 50% time, but uh, I wasn't uh, permitted to teach anymore, so I haven't taught. I was underemployed, frankly. Right. So I mean, the, it wasn't good for me. Uh, or for the university, so it's it's good that we. It's great that you have came to an agreement to part to a, ways. Yes. It's good for both of us. Now you have moved on to. I'm going to ask you about what kind of animal agricultural you would support, but um, as our last question. But before we get there, I, I just want to talk for a second about what you have been doing in the meantime. You're a, a fellow at Harvard University now. In what capacity are you, or what school are you working with at Harvard? So I'm a visiting fellow in at the law school there. And at the have, law school, really? They have a program about four or five years old called their Animal Law and Policy Program. Uh-huh. And so um, they do both clinical work on behalf of, it's mostly animal protection work. Yep. Or promoting alternatives to animals and research or industrial animal ag or all the issues related to that. And so um, the program I'm in, they, there's about five or six of us, and we, we do scholarly work. That's what Harvard wants. Yep. And it, it, the purpose is to give you a chance to work on scholarly things you wouldn't otherwise have time for, it, interact with the law school faculty and the students and the greater community. Um, and um, it's, a, it's a real blessing to be there, that's all I can say. Yeah. Now, do you have to live in Boston to do that? I live in Boston. Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, I live in Rhode Island. You'll have to come visit. Um, and then I want you to talk just for a second about the kitten cannibalism campaign that you're working mm-hmm. with. What is it? It's the White Coats is the name yeah, of the organization? Yeah, there's a small group. I, I volunteer. I've done pro bono volunteer work for the past four or five years. That's yeah. one, one of the results of the I see you're expiating ones. your sins. Yes, exactly. That's exactly. I understand. Yeah. It's my, uh, not, it was not really purgatory, but, you know, I was no. part of the system. And, and now you're and, giving and, back. Giving back, right. So yeah, it was, and I worked done a little bit with them. They asked me to look at some. Uh, they're very small. They're five or six people. Mm-hmm. They're very tiny, and they but their their purpose is to twofold taxpayer waste with respect to wasteful federal funding of animal research. So the focus is right. federal animal research, and they came across this project where USDA was ARS was using cats for toxoplasmosis research, and I... Toxoplasmosis? Dug, which is a common parasite of people. Right, this is what you're supposed to not... You're not supposed to shovel kitty litter when you're pregnant because exactly. of toxoplasmosis. Exactly, I that's that. it. I have a cat, so I have okay. two cats. Yeah. So anyway, it was really that, and I, they did some initial work, and I kind of dug deeper. I Thanks for thanks underemployment. I had the time to <laughs> dig deep, and I dug deep, and I found some amazing... Disgusting. Disgusting work that USJ did. It was kind of hidden in plain sight. It was hidden in sort of obscure scientific journals. And they were doing, uh, Frank, they were taking par- a big, uh, they took several hundred cats from meat markets in China and Vietnam and dogs, killed them, took their tongues, hearts, skeletal muscle, 
and brains. Livers, probably. Brains. Too. Yeah. And ship those, FedEx those to the U.S. So this is, a, this is an industry in China which is supplying this research in the United States. Right. Okay. I mean, they did stray cats, they did meat market dogs and cats, and they did pets, unwanted pets. Yeah. On the, on the, but anyway, the, the big... Animals that were going to be euthanized anyway. Yeah, maybe. But anyway, they, they, yeah, I, I, but anyway, for whatever reason, they brought them to the stage. Or the body killed them by the barsith and feed them to cats here, the laboratory cats. So they so. want to see if they can develop Creutzfeldt-Jacob syndrome in, in, in felines? <laughs> well, I mean, is well, that, I think is that they the were, I think they were basically using the cats to see if the cat meat they ate had toxoplasmosis in it. I think that's what they were doing. They're, they're bioassays. I see. You don't need to do that. I've never, I've never seen anybody else ever do that before. With you don't need. There's other things you can do. You can do PCR. You can look for the parasite DNA. You can use a mouse model. There's a lot of things you can do. But I guess they like to use cats. Anyway, when that came out, I wrote. A, I wrote. Uh, co-authored a long, big report in March of 2019. Provided to sympathetic members of Congress. And two weeks later, that program was shut down. They couldn't defend it actually. Right. So well, that's bravo. the first. Bravo. Yeah, the first time a USD research project has ever been shut down. Like, I think President Reagan said every government program is immortal or something like that. And yeah. They're not immortal. No, <laughs> not, not, if, not if there's somebody like Jim Keene on the case. Well, so, it wasn't just me. But, I mean, we were, I, I like to team up with people. When yeah, I can contribute, sure. I do my part. Yeah, yeah. I think that's admirable. So, Jim, I, we're going to close now, but I want to ask you what is – what do you – okay, so you worked in feedlots. You understand – you fully and deeply understand the mechanics um, of the animal agriculture industry. What's, what's the alternative model? I mean, we're at this conference. Everybody's talking about, oh, we're going to stop eating so much meat, and we're, and we're going to grow more Beyond Burgers and stuff like that. I don't think any of those things are going to happen. So, but what could, what would you see as an alternative model that um, would more or less, uh, I wouldn't say replicate, obviously, what we have, but that would su- make a reasonable supply of meat um, and yet would be less uh, objectionable on all the many levels that it is now currently objectionable. That's kind of a big question, Katie. I know, Jim. I'm, I'm famous for those. <laughs> okay. Well, I would step back and because, again, my daughter, uh, you know, she had a CSA. Yeah. And she would say when she's selling her, you know, she has to sell her eggs for a higher price or whatever. And, you know, right. she would say, well, this is actually the real price. It's not subsidized. That's and a lot right. of the reason that they can have uh, cheap, Food, cheap so meat, to speak, cheap, cheap meat is because yeah. the corn and the beans that are fed to is highly subsidized. Yeah. And you have the economic externality. Sometimes animals themselves are subsidized. Like right now, President Trump is subsidizing pork because of the... Yeah, because of the tariffs. Because of the tariffs, right? Sure. So part of it is the system, all the incentives are to uh, support what I'll call the big ag model. And the other ones, it's hard to compete against free or subsidized, right? So it's not a level playing field. So I think if That's right. you know, it may be politically untenable to remove some of those subsidies. On the other side, some of the economic externalities like pollution. Have you, you ever lived near a feedlot? I did. Mm-hmm. It's brutal. I've been there. I've been. I, yeah. I, I certainly know what they smell like. Yeah, or you know, I, I visited or, or them. The, yeah, the antibiotic resistance stuff in the yeah. in the soil in the town I lived in. They had uh, this is economic externality you had from the nitrates, from either oh, animal sure. waste or from the add to the to grow corn. The water supply was contaminated. The nitrates caused uranium to become soluble. And yeah. $50 million in a tiny little town with no subsidy because you can't drink the water. Right. So, I mean, there are a lot of costs, but those costs are not borne by the industries. But the industry, and not, the farmers and the livestock producers are not bad people. 
Exactly. But they're caught in a system, and, the, and it's hard to get out. So I think part of it is the incentives, the structure, all supports that. And until you deal with that structural issues, I don't think you can really talk about terrorists because they're really not financially viable. I, I would completely agree with you, and thank you for saying that. That is exactly correct. I didn't answer your question. No, but I, you my... did answer my question because the, 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 the fact of the matter is until the entire um, – until, until the industry is forced to pay for the pollution and pay a fair wage to the workers, uh, it will never change. Right. And the same goes for why we don't have, I mean, just as, as an aside, we don't have immigration reform. Why? Because because food companies and particularly meat companies don't really want to pay that fair wage for, uh, you know, for the guys because they all have undocumented Well, it's, it's like the free, every the free economics books. It's all based yeah. on incentives and disincentives. You change right. those, you can change the system. Until you change those, yeah. it's going to be hard to So to it would deal. take an act of Congress quite literally to make these, these you know, large meat companies like Tyson, Smithfield, Cargill, et cetera, they would have to become responsible for their pollution. Well, there's, um, on the one side, you can have... Because right now, they don't have any obligations in that direction. Okay, you have two approaches, policy, legislation, public policy, legislation, or you have individual choice, you know. And I think if it's going to change, probably some even on the individual side, right, the alternative agriculture products, plant or animal, are expensive. So you have to be probably, if you have a, if you're, have a smaller budget, you can be more likely to buy the cheaper product. Right. I understand that. It's the same thing on the producer side. If there's an expensive way or cheaper way to, to produce your product, yeah. you're probably going to the cheaper way. So I think it can work from both ends, but I don't know how it's going to pan out. I don't either. And then you also have the whole shareholder model because these are all commodities as well. Right. So you have that. You have that. Anyway, Jim, that's for another discussion. Um, right now, you are uh, free to promote yourself shamelessly. Are there places where people can read about you, read about your work, read your blog? Do you have like... Like, how do people find out about more of the work that you're doing? Um, I've got a pretty. I'm a. I'm a, a, a social media and technology luddite, so I don't really have a <laughs> have a presence um, I see. at the moment. Okay, all right, but people can look. Just Google your name, Google and then my they'll, name. I'll, they'll, I, find I'll, stuff. they'll find stuff. I did. Yeah. See, <laughs> thank, thank you. you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for your presence. <laughs> thank you so much for joining me today. Okay. Thank you, Katie. Um, and it was a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you to my sponsor, and uh, thanks for listening, folks. We'll see you next week. What Doesn't Kill You is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash Heritage Radio Network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.